0: Well, hey, fans of Biblical Genetics, welcome back to another exciting episode. I am Dr. Rob, coming to you today from my office here at CMI, Creation Ministries International, in Powder Springs, Georgia. I have got some very exciting things to share with you today. In fact, I'm probably going to have to split it up into two different parts. I just had an article appear on creation.com titled, What Proportion of the Human Genome is Actually Functional, and How Much Variation is Tolerable? Now, the question of the functionality of the genome is intrinsically important for the creation and evolution debate. We have argued about this for now decades. And if you bring this up online, you're probably going to be assaulted by um, some very dogmatic people who think that most of the genome is actually junk. Now, I, of course, don't think so. And I've got a lot of brand new papers that have just come out saying that, in fact, um, there's a lot more functionality of the genome than anyone thought. But before we get into a discussion on my new article, I want to talk about things that are happening in the world of functional DNA that are coming out basically after I posted that article. One, two, three articles came out. I learned about another one I had missed, and I learned about a book that had been published just late last year on the subject. And these are fascinating, fascinating, absolutely amazing as we learn more and more and more about how God engineered this genome of ours. Uh, First, I want to talk about An article in Chemistry World by Rachel Brazil. This is from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Uh, This article is titled, More Than a Mirror Image, Left-Handed Nucleic Acids. Okay, now what is a left-handed nucleic acid? Well, the DNA that you're familiar with, the double, double helix, coils to the right. But there are other forms of DNA, specifically one called ZDNA, which will twist to the left. It's just a different configuration of DNA. You can twist backwards. It's not as pretty as the normal DNA that you see pictures of. It's kind of kinky and, and bent in weird places. And researchers for for a long time have just assumed that it was just junk. A lot of viruses have Z DNA, this backward twisting DNA, so it's all viral infections and things like that. But the new information coming out about ZDNA is absolutely fascinating. It forms an RNA and DNA, so RNA can twist backwards also. Um, they've discovered... Hundreds of sections of Z DNA in the human genome, about a hundred base pairs long or so, and they're often clustered around promoter regions. That's the stuff just upside, uh, just upstream of a gene that ter- tells the gene whether it's going to be on or off. So this junky looking DNA turns out to be critical for the control of transcription. That is. The, uh, the process of taking the DNA and turning to RNA, some of that RNA will be made into protein. Some of it will just remain as RNA. But the control of gene transcription is very important here. And ZDNA is definitely a transcriptional control. It's also involved in the innate immune response. Because a lot of viruses, their DNA forms ZDNA. So your body says, hey, I see ZDNA. This must be a virus. Let's attack it. So one of the primary lines of defense is called innate immunity. But we also have a ZDNA binding protein called ZDNA binding protein 1 or ZBP1. Now, why would we have a protein in our bodies that binds to this DNA if the DNA is not functional? Maybe it's because of the the innate immune response and we just want to get rid of the, the viral proteins. But our cells also form DNA, and therefore this protein sticks to our own DNA. What's it doing? Well, it's controlling partially the turning on, turning off of genes, but it's also enriched in hotspots of human cancers. So when ZDNA goes wonky, we tend to develop cancer. I would think that that is a hallmark of functionality right there. The sequence of zDNA must be such that it doesn't develop cancer, but if you mutate it, then cancer can form. So, zDNA turns out to be a very important part of our genome. Now, it's less than 1% of our genome, okay, but it does add an entire new class of DNA to the functional category of things that are really important in your cells. But it's not just zDNA. DNA can also form... that is, four pieces of DNA can line up together. It's called uh, G-quadruplexes, four-stranded DNA in a secondary structure. They're uh, in the article. They're implicated in transcriptional regulation and, again, in cancer. But we can also form triple-stranded DNA called H-DNA or triplex DNA that has also been linked to gene modulation, according to uh, Rachel Brazil. That is really, really interesting. When we're talking about how much of the DNA is actually functional, there's a brand new class of DNA that's been brought into the functional category. A second paper uh, just came out uh, very recently by Zhang et al. Fox P3, now Fox P3 is a protein that we produce, a DNA binding protein. Fox P3 recognizes microsatellites. What's a microsatellite? Uh, Microsatellites are highly repetitive uh, sections of DNA. They're short little pieces of DNA. We tend to have multiple ones in tandem, and they tend to increase the number over time, and then all of a sudden you lose a whole bunch. And so when you look at microsatellites, you can tell species apart. Sometimes you can tell individuals within a species apart. One of my first studies that I was involved with in DNA work, I was on a project where uh, one of my my lab partners, my co-graduate students, got a grant to study this one particular coral in Florida. And in fact, she went all around the Caribbean doing it. And I was doing the DNA extractions on this project. And this is before DNA sequencing. What we were doing, what her project was involved with, was looking at microsatellites in coral. So she'd amplify a little section of repetitive DNA and run it out on the gel. And you could tell, how, based on how far that thing went in the gel, how long that section was. And she went on this one reef, um, famous reef that had this beautiful Acropora palmata uh, corals on it that are all now dead. But at the time, she sampled all these different colonies on this reef. And she looked at the microsatellites and found out that they were all exactly the same. Does that mean there's no genetic diversity in this species? No, it meant that all of those colonies on an entire reef was actually a single clone. And that when a storm came and break off a, broke off a branch, a branch would land, it would regrow. And so this entire hundreds and hundreds of colonies is actually one animal. Oh, that was interesting. But then she went all over the Caribbean looking at microsatellites and corals, finding all the differences. is really interesting. But this is before we could actually sequence DNA cheaply. That's what a microsatellite is. Highly repetitive piece of DNA that tends to multiply over time. And then every once in a while, a big uh, jump will happen and a bunch will be deleted. FOXP3 recognizes microsatellites and bridges DNA through multimerization. So microsatellites, everyone thought they were junk DNA, but this protein that we manufacture grabs it and will grab it on another piece of DNA also and bridge two pieces of DNA together. So microsatellites are a highly functional part of our genome that is grabbed by proteins and it helps to scaffold DNA together and helps build a three-day, three-D configuration of DNA. They concluded their abstract. These findings therefore reveal a mode of DNA recognition that involves transcription factor homomultimerization and DNA bridging, and further implicates microsatellites in transcriptional regulation. And again, just like ZDNA DNA and diseases, so there's a whole other class of DNA. That's now in the functional category, microsatellites. Another paper just came out. This is by Nicholas Stepanku and Yang and Hughes in, um, in genome research. The human genome contains over a million autonomous exons. Okay, autonomous means they can work by themselves, but what's an exon? Okay, you remember your basic biology? A gene in higher organisms is composed of introns and exons. The intron is an intervening piece of DNA that has to be cut out and removed from the RNA. Then the exons are spliced together to make the functional messenger RNA that will be used to make a protein. You remember that? I mean, I've talked about that a lot of times on this channel itself. But the human genome contains over a million autonomous exons. What they did was they took the human genome and broke it up into 500 to 1,000 letter chunks. And they splice them into a gene in HEK-293, which is a human cell line taken from a child that was aborted, some might say murdered, in the Netherlands, I think it was 1972, and the cell line was made in 1973. I did a whole series on uh, human stem cell technology and and the abortion industry involved in human cell lines that was a couple of years ago there'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested but they took this the cell line and they took a gene and they stuck these random pieces of the human genome into an intron in that gene just an intron and then as that messenger RNA is being made from that gene if at random they happen to have stuck an exon into the intron the exon could be spliced out and joined To that messenger RNA. And they just scanned, I mean, you know, millions and millions and millions of of, of copies of the stuff. They're scanning for functional exons that are incorporated into the RNA. And they found over a million. What that means is that scattered throughout the human genome are functional exons, not random pieces of DNA, but pieces of DNA that already have the intron-exon splice sites encoded into them. But most of them are not in the protein-coding DNA. They're in the non-coding DNA. What are all these exons doing in the non-coding region? What are these things that look like they should be incorporating the proteins doing in the non-protein-coding regions? Well, a lot of them happen to be in um, long non-coding RNAs. These are RNAs that, are manufactured by the cell. Sometimes they're spliced. Sometimes they're alternately spliced. Uh, They they turn into RNAs that aren't made into proteins. And most of these exons are functional in RNA, but they're not part of the protein coding zone of the genome. Now, what does this mean? This is going to be a long time before we actually find out what these things really are for. I highly suspect that they're just part of the non-protein coding region and they're very functional in in the fact that they're made into RNAs, spliced RNAs. But that is really interesting. That's a whole huge swath of the so-called junk DNA that now we know are functional as far as containing exons. Now, is this too much for you? Is this too technical? Um, biology is technical i mean this is what happens when we deal with biology when we're dealing with god's creation we're dealing with really complex things because well god as the ultimate engineer is an amazing engineer god as an engineer did very carefully designed complicated things just to keep you alive and that's what we're learning over time more and more of the junk stuff is coming into the functional category and that leads right into and an essay in bio essays by uh, Dr. Nils Walter. Are non-protein-coding RNAs junk or treasure? That's a debate, isn't it? How much of the genome is functional depends upon how much of this non-coding RNA actually does stuff in the genome. Is that just parasitic RNA from ancient viral infections that, that we're constantly making and in, in interfering with the cell and slowing down the cell and being very... Um, non-efficient, or are these things direct and important and manufactured because they have a reason? So that's what this article is about. An attempt to explain and reconcile opposing viewpoints of whether the human genome was mostly transcribed into non-functional or functional RNAs. Um, as a professor with class, he had his students uh, look at different areas of genetics and improve Wikipedia with new information. In fact, he writes this. He has... I had asked teams of students to each develop or expand a Wikipedia entry related to our course material. One group identified repeated sequence DNA as a rudimentary entry that needed some work. The students added, based on an exhaustive literature search, much flesh to the existing bones in the form of history, types, and functions, and physiology and disease of these pervasive repeat sequences. At the end of the term, the students move the entry from the sandbox to the Wikipedia proper. All right, make a prediction. What do you think is going to happen? Somebody dared to challenge the junk DNA mantra, and they put it on Wikipedia. And surprisingly, he was surprised by the reaction. He he writes, Remarkably, within 24 hours, an international team of retired and active geneticists and evolutionary biologists had prominently added the sentence to the entry, suggesting that these repeat sequences are likely non-functional and belong to the junk or selfish DNA of the cell. Additionally, they published an accompanying blog about their grievance that the term junk DNA had been removed by the students. Personally, the strong reaction surprised me. Well, does not surprise me. What's happening here is that the old guard is protecting their turf. The Richard Dawkins generation, who believes that the, the cell is mostly junk DNA, that is just evolutionary accidents built up over time, is really protecting their territory. But the younger generation of scientists who have grown up with complexity, and they just understand that the cell is complex and well-engineered and, and extremely difficult to understand um, they're struggling with the older guys. He writes, I had assumed that modern transcriptome analysis, funded in part since 2004 by the National Human Genome Research Institute through the ENCODE project, had long dispelled the early misperception that our genome harbors 90% useless junk DNA, since most of it's transcribed into non-protein coding or non-coding RNAs. Wow. And he included a very interesting graphic he has his two uh, pie charts that he uh, adapted from another reference, but he has 1980 and then 2020. And then the 1980 pie chart, you have a little bit of function for messenger RNAs and ribosomal RNAs and transfer RNAs and some introns, but most of that pie is non-functional DNA, more than three quarters of it, non-functional. But today, you still have the messenger RNAs, transfer RNAs, the ribosomal RNAs, and the introns, and then Most of the rest is small known coding RNAs and long non-coding RNAs. And that is the debate. How much of that stuff is actually functional is the debate. And the old guys don't want to let go. They want to hold very tight to most of the genome is junk. Why? Because if it's not junk, well, one, it has to be explained in how it arose. And the more complicated it is, the harder it is to have it arise. Also, because if it's not junk, then the mutation target is very large. We know the mutation rate. We know how fast natural selection can remove bad mutations or amplify good mutations. We know that from math, going back to the 1950s with J.B.S. Haldane and Haldane's Dilemma, we know that the math tells us that only a certain number of things can be eliminated or amplified even in millions of years. And the more functional the genome becomes the less possible it is for selection to remove all the bad mutations. So there you have it. That's the war that's happening. He writes, Most non-coding RNAs, so pervasively transcribed in the human genome, have no clear function yet. One of the reasons they have no function, just like ZDNA, is that they were relegated to the junk status for generations. And uh, as people are finding out more and more functions for them, people are resisting the functionality and just pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off and resisting the whole thought that they actually are functional. So science is behind because of scientists. But it's clear that most non-coding RNAs participate in specific functional pathways in unique ways. He points out that a lot of these non-coding RNAs are only used in one cell, one cell type under one condition or one particular time of development. They're not produced in massive numbers. They're produced sometimes very infrequently. Maybe they turn on once in the lifetime of the whole organism. So is that functional? Well, yeah, it's a massive switch. A thing turns on, it does something, and then it's turned off again. Geneticists and evolutionary biologists will take conservation of the DNA sequence as an important criterion for defining a gene as functional. But a lot of these non-coding RNAs, their sequence isn't specific. They can mutate and still function because they're not making proteins. Because RNA is a lot more tolerant of mutation and for what it does, it can still do a lot of things regardless of the actual sequence of the letters. As long as enough of those letters are correct, the other ones can vary. And because of that, the evolutionists I basically said, well, that's variable, therefore that's junk because selection doesn't operate on it because selection should, anything important, selection is going to keep it from changing. That's actually the focus of the article that I'm going to have to save for part two. Oh, there's so much interesting stuff in here. Um, <clears throat> genetically de- deleting, genetically deleting and non-coding RNA may not immediately lead to an observable phenotype. Therefore, it's not functional? Or is it because a cell is so robust that even when one function is lost, the cell can still survive or the organism can still survive? That there are alternate pathways for a lot of biological things that might not be the most efficient route to get to an endpoint, but if something is broken in the middle, the cell can still compensate. Oh. Uh, typical of complex, critical biological functions that are often involve subtle functional effects, cell type and stress specific functions or redundant pathway components to ensure robust biology, etc. He's basically saying that the, the fact that you can delete something and it still functions is typical of biology because living things are, in fact, robust. Clearly, absence of a deletion phenotype in one cell under optimal conditions is not evidence of the absence of function in all cell types under all conditions. In other words, just because you can delete something and doesn't have any noticeable effect in one cell type, in a culture dish, under optimal conditions, that's really irrelevant when considering functionality of that particular piece of DNA. Oh, this is amazing. Long co- non-coding RNAs are often confined to the nucleus. Therefore, high expression levels are not needed because they're manufactured in the nucleus right next to the DNA that the non-coding RNAs will stick to. Or right next to the RNAs that the non-coding RNAs will stick to and interfere with. So yeah, I mean fewer than one thousand long known coding sorry. Fewer than one thousand long non-coding RNAs are present at greater than one copy per cell in typical human tissue. In other words, they're not produced a lot. They're only produced a little bit, but those little bits are very important. Some evolutionary biologists and philosophers suggested that sequence conservation among genomes should be the primary or perhaps only criterion to identify functional genetic elements. Hold that thought for part two, because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Um, Is sequence conservation critically important? No, not for the non-coding DNA. For the protein coding regions, most of it's important. Some of it's critically important, and you have Incredibly different organisms all sharing extremely similar DNA in some places. But there are other places where it's highly variable, and yet that place can still be functional. <laughs> it is currently impossible to fully understand the emergent properties of life based on simple cause and effect reasoning. Oh man, that is a broadside shot at the, uh, at the uh, what do we call it? What do we call the people, that, the junkists? The people who think that the non-functionalists? What do we call the people who think that most of the genome doesn't actually do anything? he's directly addressing them. This guy is a poet. These examples of holistic functioning of non-coding RNAs in their species-specific cellular context lay bare the limited power of pure sequence conservation predicting all functionally relevant nucleotides. Oh, man. You know, scientific writing is really hard to understand sometimes. And I know that particular sentence, you might not have quite got what he's saying, but that is actually amazing. He's using examples, and he's saying the holistic functions of non coding DNA, uh, non coding RNAs, can't be understood easily if you're just looking for cause and effect relationships. Oh, that, that mouse just died, that non coding RNA must be really important. That's not the way it works. Not the way it works at all. So much more here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm skipping over quote after quote after quote in this paper that I underlined. This conclusions, he writes, non-coding RNAs appear to increasingly leave the junkyard. Thank you, sir. This is what the creation has been saying for decades. He writes, perhaps a first step toward reconciliation, now that non-coding RNAs appear to increasingly leave the junkyard, would be to substitute the needlessly categorical and derogative word RNA or DNA junk for the more agnostic and neutral term non-coding RNA of unknown phenotypic function. I like that. I like that a lot. That is exactly the way I've been thinking for a very long time. It's nice to see some scientists coming along to understand the complexity of the genome. Not to be undone though, Lawrence Moran wrote a book last year What's in your genome? 90% of your genome is junk. Well, I do believe that his book already is outmoded, and all the information coming at us from science is telling us that there's a lot more functionality to the non-coding regions of the DNA than anyone thought. Now, that is my take-home point for you. There's more functionality to the non-protein-coding regions of the DNA than anyone thought anyone that is except the creationists, because we've been saying for a long time that this stuff is functional. But it doesn't mean that it's all functional. You can still have pieces of DNA that are just scaffolding, that hold things in place. You can still have pieces of DNA that are broken. They're not functional anymore. They have broken. You can still have pieces of DNA that are only there to do minor things in the cell, little things. It doesn't mean that it's necessary for the thing to live and survive, but still has a function in one sense. It's just not a critically important function. And we have RNA whose functionality is not specific to the sequence because you can change the letters and because you're not making proteins, the letters can change and still has some functionality. you can't change it entirely, which we saw in ZDNA. You can change some letters, but other letters, you change that and you develop cancer. But the sequence of the RNAs is not as tightly constrained. Therefore, the function is very hard to elucidate. That's because our genome is complicated, amazing, and built in ways that we did not expect. So how do you like that? That That's a long, long thing. I just want to do a 10-minute analysis of my article, but all this other information appeared recently and I had to talk about it. So now I'm going to come back with part two, and we're going to discuss my article, What Proportion of the Human Genome is Actually Functional. This is going to be a very interesting discussion as we delve into the genome that God created. Biblical Genetics is supported by a small group of very dedicated volunteers. Thank you, all my friends, on Patreon and on Buy Me a Coffee. I could not be here without you. You'll notice the last couple episodes, I'm wearing a new microphone. Those goes with my new camera, my Osmo Pocket 3, which was a tremendous upgrade in technology from my Osmo Pocket 1 that I had been using. I am very pleased with the way this camera is working, um, but I could not have done it without you. You have allowed me to produce a better video because of your generous contributions. If you'd like to help contribute, there'll be some links in the show notes, um, but thank you for listening and stay tuned for part two.